hey Brandon, uh, you know, Giorgio, we've, uh, uh, I don't know if we ever saw each other at Laureate. I don't but, um, think we did. I think we just met at Next 36 and then yeah. we're like, well, we both went to Laurier. And I think we were actually yeah. in the same year as well, which is, which is wild. Um, Maybe we're in like the same off. Timmy's lineups and we just didn't re- realize it. Probably. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised we actually didn't run into each other because the class wasn't that big at the, when it was graduating. Um, but I guess that's an interesting place to start off. So both went to Laurier <coughs> um, and then met Next 36. So in your history, kind of in your past, did you, I know back then it was like a bike, I think it was like a biking rideshare business yeah. idea initially. Did you always have like startup ideas and work on startups or kind of how did your whole entrepreneurship career begin? Was it there? Was it like, you know, 10 years old mowing lawns? Kind of how did you get into this whole exciting field of being a founder and running, working with startups? Um, so, I mean, I feel, I always like think about uh, my, uh, like I, I feel like I've had like two big, chapters in my life there was like the athletic chapter uh and then there was like the academic and technology and entrepreneurship chapter of my life um and uh yeah like i i did not pay any attention in school uh until i got into laurier um because i thought uh i i just thought i was gonna like play soccer all my life uh soccer was like my only true passion and i was very obsessed with it. Um, and I think that's just been like a common theme in my life. It's just like having a thing that I just like go all in on. And I, I was, yeah, very much all in on soccer and, um, uh, you know, played competitively most of my life. Um, and through that, I got a scholarship at Laurier. Um, and I, I, I don't even know if it was like, if I even had the grades to get into Laurier, had it not been for soccer, like I always questioned that. I didn't, I never fully found out, but uh, I remember messaging the the coach, Mario Halapier, uh, that I was like interested in, in applying. And, um, you know, next thing, next thing I knew, you know, like I did apply and I got accepted. And um, there was like a light bulb moment at that point where I was like, you know, maybe I won't be playing soccer all my life. And then I started kind of, I guess I started maturing a little bit more in that sense and like broadening my horizons around my interests and maybe like seeing like if, you know, for example, reading would be of interest to me. Cause like before that I was like, nah, I don't want to read anything. And like, I would, I'd be like that, that I was like the kind of student that would like never read the assigned books in high school and just like, uh, you know, bullshit my way through like essays and stuff. Um, and, um, I just like arbitrarily picked economics. Uh, you know, I did, I never really thought like I'd want to be an economist or something. Um, and then there was like a brief moment when I thought maybe I'll get into investment banking. Uh, so then I got into co-op um, and then I started doing internships in, in finance. And I remember um, my first internship, there was this other student, other co-op student also from Laurier that was really interested in automating spreadsheets. So he was always like learning on the side, this thing called VBA, mm-hmm. um, which I had no interest in. Uh, and um, he, he like intellectually just totally kicked my ass in this co-op job. And, um, you know, halfway through the co-op term, people stopped going to me, like people at, uh, at, at like, uh, you know, colleagues or people, you know, like uh, 
uh, yeah, they, they stopped going to me because he, he, he had automated like half of his job so he could do everything faster than me and more accurately. So the competitive nature in me like got to me and I was like, I can't allow Same, like yeah. another co-op student to like kick my butt like that. So mm-hmm. I remember for my second internship, I was like, no, I'm going to learn VBA and I'm going to make sure that I like automate the shit out of my job. Uh, pardon my French. <laughs> um, and I, that, that started like the whole, I think, entrepreneurship journey for me because once I realized what VBA was, uh, which is just like a programming language for Excel, um, that like blew my mind, like, you know, automating things and just seeing like how fast, you know, a calculation can run in Excel mm-hmm. through this VBA language. Uh, yeah, just, I just totally nerded out. Um, and then I started um, uh, taking a, a Harvard class. So there's this, mm-hmm. now I think it's somewhat well-known, it's called CS50. So I ended up taking this uh, free Harvard class online uh, that was an introduction to computer science. Um, and I, yeah, like completely fell in love with that and ended up finishing it um, that year. Um, and at the same time, I started doing more. That was a moment in school where I also stopped sort of paying much attention um, in school and realized that there was this whole world of startups as well. Yeah. So I was like simultaneously learning about software um, and also learning more about startups. And I started hanging out a ton at University of Waterloo and going to their pitch competitions, networking there, meeting really interesting people. Um, and that's, you know, I kind of just kept hanging out around these really interesting people that were my age or that had these like really ambitious ideas around mm-hmm. businesses and revolutionizing industries. And eventually I think just like hanging out with them uh, for so long. And then I also got a co-op job at a startup too. So my last co-op job was also at a startup. Uh, so like all these things sort of like came together where like eventually it was like, why don't I start my own company? Um, and uh, yeah, kind of just went off, off on the tangent there. I don't, I don't remember exactly the, that makes the question. But... What's, yeah, no, but what's kind of funny about your journey is, you know, saying someone who was, you know, you, you said initially not that academic, choosing finance, a very academic, like grade heavy career path, typically, uh, especially if you get into any investment banking at all, it's always like super mathy, super technical. And then the dev side of things also pretty learning heavy and technical. Most of you talk to people are like, I don't like school. I don't like studying. I become a sales rep where I can just smile and get through it. So that's kind of, it's kind of funny how you bring that up initially when you kind of the career path you took, I would say is very you're not like school heavy, but like very learning heavy because it's pretty hard to like make up learning how to program, kind of have to teach yourself and kind of go through that rigor. But I'm assuming it was like you said, like that sports background of like, oh, there's a competition. I can get better at something, kind of see progress. Why Why do you think like, um, what was interesting to you about the like dev side of things, maybe rather than more of like the business and sales side of things? Was it the idea that like you can create something more. Cause I always find that interesting. There's always like a shift. Like I almost went the opposite when I was in school, I took programming from the age of like 12 to when I got to Laurier, got into school and was like, man, programming's boring. Like this is not what I want to do. I want to get into more of the business side of things. Do I regret that? Possibly now looking back at it, but I kind of went the opposite way of most people. So what do you think made you so interested in like computer science and more of that dev side? Was it the creation aspect? Was it the whole new world kind of, 
it's because it's interesting, but it's also like you, it takes a lot of learning. Kind of what made you so interested in it, though? Um, hmm. A part of me wants to say that there's like a like the little kid kid in me really enjoys like the puzzles mm -hmm. um, of programming. Um, and I like, you know, for, in, in my childhood, I played a lot with Lego. And I, I kind of like think about that, like, huh, like, I wonder if all the Lego I played with uh, made me enjoy programming. Like if there's like some, you know, deep part of my brain that like goes back to like the Lego pieces coming together and stuff. I think there's some truth, truth to that. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think also like same applies to the parts of economics that I enjoyed. Um, like anytime I did apply myself in school, um, the, 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 the classes or challenges that I enjoyed the most were like the, the logical ones, yeah. uh, like calculus, uh, all, all the math around economics and like doing proofs and like the proof coming together. And it's like, oh, this really complicated thing has just reduced to this tiny formula. Um, I always found myself like really clicking with that. So I think, I don't know, there's always been like a, a part of me that's really enjoyed like the puzzles. Um, and to me, programming is just like one big puzzle. And like, when it all comes together, it's really satisfying. That is actually what got me into programming initially, like the ability to create kind of to solve a puzzle where I fell off. And I think this was because truthfully, I was too cocky when I was younger, uh, thinking like I knew better because I took programming before going to school. I'm like, I don't need to learn this. Failed the exam, pass, fail, final, really messed with me. <coughs> but it was just because I didn't know syntax at all of the link, I think it was Python. I was never programmed Python before, but I had the opposite issue where I found that because in school is like very, I guess, cause maybe it was in school. It's like very structured, like develop this class, do this one project where I'm like, I'm gonna be creative. I want to go outside the lines, not very conducive to the education realm, especially or like school where they're like, you have to do this. This is the result we need. So probably should have stuck with it though. Self teaching a bit, but you know, I guess we had a very similar journeys. <coughs> I stayed more, obviously, I volunteered a lot with Velocity and Communitech at the time and, and still do my mentor, actually, at Laurier for startups. Um, but then we ended up both on Next36. So how'd you, like, what made you apply Next36 and kind of get into and come with your business idea? Were you working on the idea before the program, I'm assuming? Or kind of what was the, what was the idea that got you into the program? Right. Um, well, yeah, like, I, at that point, I had been i even got to a point where i was taking a class at university of waterloo mm -hmm. so yeah like i just sort of became obsessed with like hanging out at university of waterloo and like i did everything possible to like spend as much time as i could there and through like i, I think there's just like one day like i think it was at the class that i was taking it was called bet 300 mm -hmm. um the the prof brought in someone from next 36 to talk about the program. And then that's how I learned about it. Um, and then I just started kind of reading up on it a little bit more. And then it turned, it turned out that there was an alumni from this bet 300 program that had, uh, that I met at like a party or something. I can't exactly remember where. Uh, and then I was like, well, maybe I'll apply and, and have him uh, give me a reference. Because if you get a reference, then that helps with the application. Um, and um, yeah, I, at that point, I, I had already been working on, uh, uh, it was called Bike Me. 
with a weird spelling. Um, and um, I had been working on that for a few months. Um, and yeah, that was, you know, sort of like the, the idea of what I was coming into Next36 with. And, you know, when I did get uh, accepted to the, what was it called? Um, something weekend, like, oh, I, can't remember. I can't remember. Yeah. But during that weekend where, you know, it's just like intense rounds of interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember pitching it to, it was a J. It was, mm-hmm. uh, I got interviewed by a J. Um, and I gave him the whole spiel. And then he asked some really good questions around the economics and viability of the business and scalability, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of, you know, like I remember him like pausing and just processing what I had said. And then uh, he basically was like, yeah, your business isn't good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, and then he kind of like proceeded to then break down his thinking around why it's not good. Uh, and then, um yeah he started out he was like you know from that from there he was like so <laughs> why should why you sh- why should you be accepted um and then i guess you know my my answer was compelling enough uh to to still get in despite despite next to six not really mm-hmm. uh liking the business that's i mean it was such an intense weekend i think it was the first time i had that many interviews in such a short period of time it was very mm-hmm. much like going to like law school or working for an investment bank where it was just like interview day where you just go with like hotel room, hotel room, interview, 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 question, question, question. It was yeah. very uh, interesting and obviously like a unique experience for sure. And probably something I, I remember to this day, everyone I met at that program, I'm like, remember, we all remember all those interviews and in fact, about a few of them, most of them on, on this podcast already. So <clears throat> when you kind of go through the program, you're kind of set now and being, okay, I'm being an entrepreneur. I kind of want to work on this business. Kind of what goes on from there? Like how, how do you go from that to where you are, are today? Kind of working in the new field, kind of being the uh, founding engineer at Caribou. Kind of like what was the journey in between? Were you always trying to figure out kind of the next business where you're like, you know what? I'm going to take a break. Kind of work on a few ideas here and there. Kind of how, how did your journey go from that day to where you are today? Um, well, I've always been very uh passionate about the technical side of things and and yeah and and being the technical co-founder uh or like founding engineer um so that's been a common theme since day one basically uh and during the next 36 program i did focus on the non-technical side of things and like the business development um and thinking around the viability of um, businesses, but for me, I've, I just can't help, but also focus on the, on the technical side of things. So I would say that the majority of the time was spent like honing the technical skills, mm-hmm. um, and just coding a lot, uh, regardless of, of what it was. Um, and, and so briefly after getting into next 36, um, my, like the two partners I had been working on this bike thing with, they kind of just, you know, they weren't interested in it it anymore. They didn't want to be part of next 36. Um, They went the separate ways. And then I kind of lost interest as well. Uh, And then I was discouraged by uh, the feedback from a J. So I said, okay, well let's maybe focus on something else. 
And so I ended up partnering with uh, two longtime friends and it was like a summer of just trying different ideas and, and trying out different things. And through that, using that sort of process of uh, business discovery as an opportunity to, yeah, to like code a ton. Um, and so by the end of that program, uh, obviously it networked a lot. Um, I ended up meeting uh, Guillaume Laliberté. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's an alumni of, of Next36. Um, really great guy. And, you know, we, we were chatting one evening and he said he was looking for a developer and he was just starting something new. And I, yeah, I jumped at the opportunity to join, join his company um, and use that as a platform to hone, continue honing my skills. Uh, so I ended up joining that company, which eventually ended up becoming Setter. Um, and that was a really funny moment because, or like a really funny, like founding story. So I joined when it was myself, Guy, and three other people. So Guillaume and David Seckel are the co-founders of Setter. And then there were three other people, uh, myself included, as part of the founding team. One of the other people was this experienced um, software engineer um, who I get a sense wasn't really that bought into Setter. Um, and... I eventually realized that he was kind of doing setter more on the side. Like he was physically in the office and we had this like, you know, basement office. Um, and he would be there, but I just got the sense that he was working on other stuff more than anything. Uh, and I remember uh, Guillaume asking me why, why are we moving so slowly? Or like, you know, like why is this feature not done yet? And I explained to him like, you know, this code is a, a total, a total mess. Uh, and I was like, do you want to see this mess of a code base? And then he started kind of poking holes at the application stuff. And he realized that, yeah, there were some, uh, some, some issues. So this engineer that I was meant to learn from, who was more experienced than me, ended up getting let go. And then here I was uh, as this like inexperienced software developer uh, as the only developer of <laughs> the startup. So it was very much baptism by fire. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it was quite stressful and quite demanding and definitely a lot of late nights, but uh, it really accelerated my pace of learning. Um, and, you know, I, it, it was it was like two years of that, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and then eventually the, the company sort of like stabilized and there was a lot more engineers that ended, ended up joining uh, so I got to learn a ton from them as well. So it was uh, like a total of four years of being in this company. Um, took a break after that uh, and continued, uh, yeah, sort of still continued uh, focusing on the technical side of things. Um, but after taking a break, I, you know, I I knew I wanted to come in uh, to to be part of something new. From, mm -hmm. from the start uh, as a technical co-founder. Um, and then that's where Corey approached me. Um, we, you know, we're both part of the same cohort from Next36. Mm -hmm. um, and we got to talking and, you know, what he was working on was quite interesting and obviously still is very interesting. Um, and it, yeah, it turned out to be a really good fit. So we did like a three month sort of like 
contractor trial period. Yeah. Um, and then from there, we, you know, we agreed for me to join uh, as part of the founding team. Um, and so, you know, fast forward. So that was in 2021 mm-hmm. um, is when I joined. And then, yeah, fast forward to today, you know, uh, our company's always been fully remote and um, we uh, were able to raise a, a pre-seed round and we're working towards a, a series A. What a journey. Like, like you were saying, like it, it kind of looking back, it was like such, it's like, Oh, it's so simple. You know, learn, learn to love the dev side, join next 36, work for a company, start a company. It's always like one straight line, but as everyone's where, I mean, in the moment you're like, what the heck's going on? Is this, do I want to do this? It's so much work. Why am I doing It's always the like, not the panic, but in the moment you're like, is this worth it all? But then looking back, you're like, oh, it's all simple. It's just a straight line. Never a straight line. Always so much drama and things going on. Did you, like, obviously through your journeys, you work with many different founders or many different people as well and talk to many different founders. What what have you found maybe, like, it's always a weird question, but maybe what is something that's easier when it comes to starting or running or working with a business then people think like, what's an easier thing? What's something that's a lot harder that people underestimate is going to be a big challenge when trying to f- found the business. Um, it always surprises me how willing people are to like hop, hop on the phone and talk. Like, you know, one of the, um, uh, what's it called? Laws of startups is, you know, talk to your customers and continuously talk. Yeah. Talk to your customers. Um, it's, yeah, it always surprises me, like how you can always just like reach out to someone and mm-hmm. the majority of the time they're like, yeah, let's hop on a 30 minute call and chat. And, um, I don't think that's, that hasn't, uh, that hasn't like, I guess as someone that's almost always focused on the technical side of things and I tend to like isolate myself at times. Um, I don't know. They always just, I just find it like funny. It's like, oh, I can just message someone and just like, even though I don't know you just your people are just so helpful and, and willing, willing to help the majority of the time. Um, so I find that, find that great because like, if you're willing to put in the work, it's actually pretty straightforward to identify, uh, challenges or, mm-hmm. um, test hypotheses, that sort of thing. Um, in terms of something that's harder than that, that was the other question, right? It's like, what's, yeah. what's something that's, um, surprisingly harder. Yeah. It's surprisingly challenging. Um, I think, hmm, let's see. I think, um, like getting your product out there sooner is, is always a challenge. Mm -hmm. I think everyone has like in, in, in sort of like in theory, Mm -hmm. everyone agrees like, yes, let's put the product out there sooner rather than later. But then you get to that moment of making that decision of like, can we, should we ship it or can we ship it? And there's always these sort of like thoughts that come in your head, like, oh, the copy's not correct or this mm-hmm. button is not working and it's not perfect. Right. So like the, mm-hmm. the perfectionism comes in. And I think, I think it's easier to manage that when you're a smaller team. I mean, our team is tiny, uh, I would say, relatively speaking, like we're only 15 people. Um, but already at this size, you have so many different points of view that 
make it hard to come to the conclusion of like it's good enough and yeah. let's just ship this thing um so i think that you know that's uh a challenge for sure and then um on on that note as well another thing would be um just getting alignment with people uh again like as a team gets bigger and bigger uh making sure that people are aligned um is for me has been uh surprisingly harder than i thought it would be i i <coughs> what you touch on is very unique and i've heard multiple times first the easy the easier thing that's one thing i think a lot of people realize but don't realize is like you can just ask someone to talk to them and most people say yes and even from like working with other founders or you speaking to them and you know they're developing a product i'm like oh so you have like have you called a customer and asked them like what they think of it and they're like what do you mean i can just call them like just give them a call and they call someone they're like yeah i'll give you like 30 minutes and people are so much more helpful than you think but i think it's always i guess it's scary but also the same thing like you would i know we're talking to a lot of um entrepreneurs or at least like multiple founders you forget like how helpful people are or at least talking to other founders who are willing to help because they've been in your spot they know it's annoying they they've been through this struggle so they're always willing to help and i found in the startup community that's one thing that's pretty consistent is people are just willing to help with like no expectations for giving back like hey i'm willing to help you just because i when i was in that stage i wish i had someone to help me or i had someone help me so i think that's one thing that i've heard a few times and it's um <coughs> always nice to hear that like that is easier to reach out than people think but one thing was unique you touched on is like the growing scale and like getting alignment i remember talking to a founder who was like a team of two team of three and he's like we're talking in private a while ago and they're like yeah like i don't understand this like company culture mission vision values it's a waste of time like you just have to work 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 and they got to like 10 15 employees and they're like yeah, I understand the value of this, like setting expectations, developing a value, developing a mission statement, because I guess kind of what you're saying is like, once you have more people, you're not like in a room with three people anymore. Like there's other people who work different hours or <coughs> part of different teams and you can't be with them like every minute of the day to be like, this is the reason we're doing this. This is X, Y, and Z. So it's always funny. I've seen, I've seen a shift of like going from like one or two employees to like multiple employees is the shift of like a lot of the founders who are maybe at first or like, I don't care about culture. It's all useless to like complete 180 to be like culture is so important and we have to develop a yeah. you know, great culture and hiring practice. Cause I think it is, like you said, <clears throat> it gets harder as you grow to like, I'm going to say con not maybe control. It's not the right word, but like move the ship all together when you have less touch points along, along the way. Yeah. So, and did you find like <clears throat> with working remote, I mean, maybe more common on, on the dev side of things, but like, a lot of companies now are like, oh, do we go in person? Should we go fully remote? Kind of what, what are your views on that? Because I mean, every team's different, but how have you seen, because probably some of me, you've worked in offices before for a big part of your career and now you're remote. How have you seen this shift? Is there big learnings you found or things you found that made it more effective or kind of what are your opinions on it? Um, yeah, I have pretty strong opinions about the remote culture. Um, I think like, uh, I, it also depends on the kind of company yeah. that folks want, but I think in in the context of growing growing a startup uh, and having a startup culture, being in office wins a hundred percent. In my opinion, my, yeah, my opinion is that for startups, being in office is a competitive advantage, and you move quicker. Um, I think also there's there's something to be said around 
like uh, the camaraderie that comes from being in an office environment and um, building like a personal bond with, you know, with a group of people that is not necessarily doing something easy. Um, I think it's hard to replicate that uh, in a remote setting. Um, so yeah, like if it were if it were up to me, we would just have like one headquarters um, somewhere. So I don't know where, but wherever. And um, I think it's going to be tough for us to, to do that. You know, maybe over a few years, maybe we'll move, move in that direction. And maybe we won't, you know, um, I'm not entirely sure whether Chris and Corey fully agree on, on that, but um, yeah, I think, I think, you know, there, there's like pros to being remote. I mean, like I'm in Argentina right now and I'm enjoying Argentina, but I think um, we would be moving quicker in all honesty, and we would have better team chemistry if we were all just in an office. I, I tend to agree. I, I think I've seen from like working in an office and working in the incubators, even myself, like the relationships you build is a different level. It's also good to see like if you're working late and then your buddy is working with you beside you, like, okay, we're both, it's not just me who feels bad. Like everyone's in this grind together and kind of going through the trenches um, of it. But at the same time, I've also seen the positivity of working remote for, I guess, like you said, it's depending on the role and depending on the team size. But I found as a team got bigger when there's less speed of things, just because if you have like a you know 300 employee company, you can't be making split second decisions as often. I've seen the benefits there. But yeah, I guess I have to agree with you that a smaller company and, and where like every, where literally like things can change over a week especially if you're pre-launch, it's like, we are this type of application. If you talk to four customers, you're like, we have pivoted to this now. And I don't think online you can do that same speed of iteration um, and build those same relationships. But speaking selfishly, it's also nice to be like, I'm just going to make lunch today. I'm not going to have to go to a cafeteria. So I guess it, it is a trade-off, but I same thing I, I've heard has been pretty consistent is like speed in that relationship. No one's really been able to mimic, <coughs> mimic it online. It's completely different. Um, but it uh, it would be interesting to see, I guess, as um, you know, as this becomes more of a standard, how companies adapt, like how new founding teams can you have? I haven't heard of many, but like where founding teams or like founding members are from different countries, all at once starting a business. There's probably examples, but typically it's always like the college dorm room experience, or yeah, you're both, you know, the Steve Jobs garage experience. Probably is the best, but it'd be interesting to see, you know, in the few years to be like, oh, you know, Billy and Sam. You know, we're in different sides of the globe and we're able to work 24 hours. Like it might be a whole different, uh, whole different story, but who knows? I think it's hard to, like you said, the human experience of like in person is very unique and hard to explain, but from successful companies, obviously in our least in the early stages, it kind of is needed, um, <coughs> or at least a big part of it. So yeah, interesting to hear your perspective, but, and also I guess interesting to hear because most people on the dev side, and maybe this is like a for sure a generalization tend to be way more open to remote. They're the people who are like, I work between midnight and 4am. That's my work cycle. But all the sales guys are like, no, nine to five, we all have to be in office. So it's unique yeah. to hear on the other side of it. Typically it's not, not like that. <laughs> I think, you- yeah, there's also like, um, kind of related to this, like another maybe strong opinion I have is like, I think, mono having monocultures so like almost it's kind of kind of like a 
I think there's like something to be said around having like a certain level of, a, hmm, I don't know if I want to use that word, but like basically like monocultures where like I, monocultures aren't necessarily healthy. Um, and there's a lot of um, like rightfully, there's a lot of dialogue around um, having a diverse environment and like allowing for having the opportunity to, for people to work remotely. Cause like not everyone has the opportunity to, to like come into the office and there's, um, it's not necessarily equitable mm -hmm. for everyone to like be forced to go into an office, which I totally get. But at the same time, I think that like when you have these sorts of constraints, you end up moving quicker in spite of, you know, mm -hmm. things like it maybe not being equitable for everyone. I, I think what you're touching on um, is something I've seen some success in is that when you start out, it's not good for long-term growth, but good for short-term growth, having everyone have the exact, not group thing, but like everyone kind of have, have the same expectations, same standards, or think similarly, so that when it comes to having a decision, it tends to move all in one direction pretty quickly. Like if you all, yeah. if you, that's, that's what you tend to see a lot of founders like come from similar backgrounds, similar experiences. So when it comes like, do you want product A or B? It's like, we all agree on B, let's run with that. And well, I think what the big benefits are is like you said, it's the speed when there's for better or for worse, when you have to think of less alternatives or like when everyone's together and in one spot or has the same mindset towards something, it's a lot easier to get agreeableness. I mean, some diverse opinions are good, but like you don't have as many roadblocks to consider, um, as you scale yeah. and grow and your market gets bigger, I think that's where it changes where you have to start considering other customers. But initially from a lot of successful founding teams, I found it's like, like you said, it's like, you have to kind of have a unhealthy, kind of unhealthy, but like a very unhealthy focus for the early parts because there's so much you have to do so quickly yeah. to get to a point that you have a, uh, a working business model, which is very difficult to do a lot of times if you, if done correctly. <coughs> Have, now, have you found, you know, now that you've kind of been in this space for a decade, now that we're older now, I can say a decade, because it's pretty much true as a decade, kind of looking back on, on as yourself early on, how have you think, like, if you had to talk silly, you know, I hate these questions, but it's always good is like, looking back to you know, the knowledge you had back in the day versus now, what, kind of, what would you tell yourself? Is there anything you were you know, looking back, you're like, wow, I was too cocky, I was too confident? Or was it the opposite? Were you like, hey, like, I was happy with how hungry I was in the past, or I wish I had more of that curiosity. Like kind of looking back, have you, what, have you, what skills have you developed from your early twenties to where you are today that you felt has made you a better founder and entrepreneur? Um, I think resilience is something I didn't necessarily have, or maybe, maybe not necessarily a resilience, but maybe conviction is a better, mm -hmm. a better way to put it. Like, um, I feel in retrospect, I gave up too easy on this, uh, bike thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't stick with it. And I feel like I went from business idea to business idea. Um, and now being here in this, like, I, I, I think like what I had in, in my head was back then, like this idea that you have this like brilliant moment, this epiphany and you like code it on one weekend and then you like you know you tweet it and then it becomes viral and then you're on like tech crunch and then you're yeah. you know you raise 10 million dollars i think i had that like you know that mental model mm -hmm. for 
for my early early days in a startup in the startup world but now i'm kind of realizing that it's like a slow burn yeah. and you need you need to have patience um and you have to come into any um any venture or any sort of like thing you're diving into in in startups with a willingness to commit to it for several years mm-hmm. um otherwise it you know i think there's sort of like this uh there, there might be like frustration or like you might build mm-hmm. resentment like oh why isn't this moving faster or like uh that might also lead to burnout where mm-hmm. something takes much longer than you thought it would um and I, I think that mental model of just sort of like having patience and you know from day one at caribou um i already came into it with like okay you know i'm gonna be here for at least five years yeah um at the very least and that's helped me to yeah not get burnt out and just sort of like continue chipping away at the the challenges the challenges that we have to to face um and I think it also keeps things exciting and just sort of like, there's like, Oh, like I'm so excited to see what things do look like in five years. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that that would be um, one of the big things for me. That what, what you said, so funny. Cause I remember back in university, I'm like, I got a group of friends. I'm like, okay, we're going to hackathon over the weekend and on Monday we're going to launch our business and try to raise funding by Tuesday. It was the same idea. Like, <laughs> okay, just need that great idea. I'll build it and launch it in like a weekend. Cause like one company did that once and that's how we're going to make all our money. And then, okay. You write the idea down. You're like, damn, it's not going to work because someone said it was a bad idea. Okay, next on to the new idea. So you constantly, yeah. it's almost like chasing the next high. You're like, one day I'll just come up with the idea that no one will have an issue with. Um, yeah. And same thing with like the next 36 experience. Like I find a lot of people mirror to me that they're like, you talk to these people and like most people are be like, this idea is shit. Like it's never going to work. And then people are like, you have to take that, understand why they think it's the case and then see like, do you have to change or was it your delivery that was wrong? Or was it the fact that they just not, might not understand the market? Like being, I think that's the one thing um, you kind of touched on that I found a lot of founders learn is that getting advice is always useful, but knowing which advice to act on is like that big skill set that's hard to do because every business you come up with, everyone's going to have like a, well, what about your competitor? They're bigger. They're just going to build it themselves. And then you're like, well, if that happens, we're screwed, but we can't stopping like we just have to keep going forward and i think that re- like you said the resilience is a skill set that you kind of have to learn over time they're like oh all these overnight successes are 10 years in the progress you know process to get to that overnight success and i think it's it's not yeah. sexy to be like i've worked on this for 10 years and this is where we're at it's nicer to be like i went to a hackathon and now i'm a billionaire but that never really happens although they write articles like it happens it, like you said it it's very much a marathon and once you can, I guess, like you said, setting expectations really prevents burnout. When you're like, hey, this is going to be like a five-year process. Process. If things don't go right in one weekend or one week, you're like, okay, let's on the time scale. How, how important is, I mean, some things go wrong, but like how much worry should we have? And I think having a longer-term horizon yeah. adds you, like you said, expectation management. <laughs> there was also another thing as that, you, you know, that um, I remember as you were you know, saying that. <clears throat> which is that early on in my career, whenever I would be doing like any sort of market research, <clears throat> um, when I st- if I would stumble upon a successful company, if I have a, if I have an idea and then I realize there's a established company already doing something similar, that to me 
would be a really discouraging thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas now that it's totally, to totally the opposite. Cause in the past I'd be looking to like be the only company. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I'm going to just find this, I'm going to create this industry and I'm going to be yeah. the only company. But um, now I actually get excited if I see a lot of companies in this space and it's indicative of there being a lot of value there, or like a lot of demand there. Um, so yeah, I would say that's another sort of thing that changed over, over the years. What you said right there is like the most shocking advice I ever heard. I was talking to an entrepreneur and then I was like talking about the business idea and I'm like, yeah, there's no competitors in this industry. And then they said, and they pretty much were like, that's a huge red flag. Why is it like, if there's no one in there, it means there's no money. Like people build businesses where there's money to be made, or at least there's a need. If no one's around nine times out of 10, it's because it's a very bad idea. And I was like, Oh, I never, like you said, <laughs> I never thought of it like that. Like I shouldn't be scared of competitors. I should be like, Oh, there is a market here that has a market. Like, there is a market we can tap into and kind of build, build in. And I think that's one thing a lot of people going into starting a business don't know is like, they think they have to have like the brand new idea that never existed before in a new market that's never occurred. And sure you can do that, but is next to impossible. It's not impossible, but it's very hard to be the bleeding edge of something. And most of those businesses yeah. are not going to have their, most of those businesses allow other businesses to have, be, have success. Once you've like paved the way through like digging out the snow and finding the market. So that's probably a very, yeah. it's a very insightful learning that I've heard many times. But also like I've experienced myself when you have that mental shift, you're like, Oh, health of a market's a big factor in like starting a business. <coughs> Definitely. So kind of, you know, as we wrap up here, um, if people want to kind of learn more about you, your story and what Caribou is like, what's the best way to follow and learn more? Um, I would say, uh, through Twitter and, um, so I can share, share with you my Twitter. Uh, I don't know if I can post it here. Mm -hmm. I can um, post it. I'll post it after in, in, in the video. And, uh, I also have a personal website that admittedly I haven't updated in a little little while but um you know once i do do take some time I'll, I'll update that but yeah generally through those two mediums i tend to uh share what's going on